Encore episode, a patient-first specialty pharmacy, not a money-first specialty pharmacy. Today, I speak with Olivia Webb. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This Encore episode seemed really apropos at this moment in time, since we've just basically published a course in the specialty pharmacy ecosystem, including who all of the various stakeholders are and what their vested interests are. Weirdly, in many of the episodes in the series slash course, you'll find the word patient in short supply. And that's not a weird oversight in our podcast production. It is actually an egregious oversight in the specialty pharmacy market, an oversight with real human consequences, which I talk about with Olivia Webb in this encore. Link in the show notes to a playlist of all of the specialty pharmacy episodes that comprise our series here. If you listen to them all, Let me know. And also let me know what you think. And I don't know, maybe we'll create a special certificate for you because at that point, you will know more than like 99% of the industry, even industry insiders, if you listen to the whole thing. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored, as always, by Aventria Health Group. Here's the cold, hard truth. The whole specialty pharmacy operational model is not built to serve patients, a fact that becomes crystal clear when you're a patient. Instead, the specialty pharmacy model is rather pretty blatantly dedicated to the power struggle for revenue and captive patient populations. It's war between providers and the whole PBM slash insurer slash specialty pharmacy vertical consolidations. Employers and pharma manufacturers are, of course, on the battlefield as well. What is a drug that qualifies to be a specialty pharmacy drug? Usually, these drugs are complicated to store, dispense, to use, and or they're expensive. Generally, really expensive, like lots of zeros. Completely unaffordable to pay cash for them as an individual. No one is using a GoodRx card and not using their insurance to pay for these puppies. They can cost as much as a house. Biologics, for example, Usually considered specialty drugs, lots of cancer and immunology therapies, injectable medications, IV, infused medications, all these are usually considered specialty drugs. There's no one definition of a specialty drug. It's more that someone somewhere decided to not run the drug through your traditional retail pharmacy for any number of reasons. The problem with the current status quo, wherein the patient gets tossed around while everybody fights over them, is that some basic needs are not being met. Like if a patient asks the person administering the drug, maybe even a pretty simple question about the drug or its side effects, it's way more likely than it should be that the nurse or whomever doesn't know the answer. Not knocking nurses here at all, but definitely knocking a system that allows that to happen. I mean, really now, we're injecting a six-figure therapy in someone's arm that will impact their body in a myriad of maybe frightening ways, some of which are a problem and some of which are not. Said another way, there's a really good financial and clinical use case for making sure that we're patient-centric at a specialty pharmacy point of service, if you care about the patient and cost efficiency that is. But I guess therein lies the root cause of the trouble. Today, I'm talking with Olivia Webb about what it would take and be like to create a, 
in air quotes, patient-first specialty pharmacy, as she has coined the term. A specialty pharmacy dedicated to patients not only having a half-decent experience, but also one that might actually create better patient outcomes. Olivia Webb is author of the Acute Condition newsletter. Links in the show notes. I would certainly recommend subscribing. One last thing, if you're following the whole PBM slash insurer slash specialty pharmacy vertical integration skullduggery, keep an eye on a bunch of lawsuits against these combined entities alleging that they are doing some not super upright and honest things with their massive market power. Say it isn't so. Olivia Webb, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks so much for having me. So I know one of the things that you have written about in your newsletter and that you've been thinking about for a while is the idea of a patient-focused specialty pharmacy. Why did you start thinking about this? This is a very personal experience for me. I have have Crohn's disease that is very well controlled on medication. But because it's well controlled on medication, it means that I have just had so much experience with specialty pharmacies on an anecdotal level. A patient-focused specialty pharmacy would take into account the fact that there's a real patient at the other end and try to distribute these drugs in a way that's not so blatantly a power struggle between hospitals and insurers. How does this blatant power struggle manifest? It depends on the system and it depends on the patient, but it usually means that You're just floating along, waiting for someone to approve your medication, waiting for someone to ship it to you. And then there's a brief moment where you get to actually either get it infused or get it injected. And that's awesome because that's all you want out of this. But then it's back to co-pays and coordinating the next shipment. You can tell no one is particularly interested in you as the patient. One of the things that I think is interesting about specialty pharmacy is that it's the most exposed that I've seen kind of the innards of healthcare as a patient. There's really no layer on top of it to make it look nice. It's you as a patient on the phone with the insurer, on the phone with the drug manufacturer, on the phone with the provider, trying to get all of these entities to talk together. It's just you figuring this out every month. So you're sick as the patient. I don't mean you mm-hmm. particularly. I just mean, you know, patients <laughs> would, patient. not be, yeah. would not be getting a specialty medication if they didn't have something going on. You've been to your physician and then you walk into the center of a gladiator ring. You've got the insurer who is trying to make sure their paperwork is filled out. Then you've got the specialty pharmacy provider themselves. And then maybe there's a PBM in the mix also. A lot of the specialty pharmacies are owned by insurers that also own PBMs, that also own retail pharmacies. <laughs> and so you're kind of dealing with this vertical stack that doesn't really deal with patients frequently. I mean, it's an insurer. They usually deal with paperwork. So I think that's part of the problem. Well, one of the rationales for this vertical integration that we're talking about, which is what you call when all of those entities consolidate, the rationale that is given is that it is much more patient-friendly because then the patient can be coordinated along the continuum of care. Theoretically, yeah, I'm all for that if it happens. (laughs) But I just don't think those entities have figured it out. I should caveat this here. I don't think the people who work there are evil, certainly not. But I do think that the system makes it very challenging. So let's talk about your vision for a patient-first specialty pharmacy. I've talked to a few different people who also get 
specialty medications. And I think the unifying feature that we've all identified is A, the fact that we have to spend so much time on the phone with insurers and PBMs and providers. And B, that a lot of times the specialty pharmacy care team, they're not experts on your condition. And there might be a pharmacist who's an expert in the drug, but that's usually not the person that you're talking to. And so even things as basic as one time my medication wasn't in the fridge long enough because of a shipping issue. And no one could tell me if it was okay or safe to inject, which is confusing because the specialty pharmacy is theoretically the entity that's in charge of that. There's a lot of fragmentation. There's a lot of friction. And a patient-focused specialty pharmacy, I think, would take care of a lot of that. It would just It would add that layer that makes it easier for a patient to go through the system. If we're starting at the very beginning of the care continuum here. Once you're diagnosed, and we'll just set aside the whole diagnostic process. Once you've been diagnosed and the doctor has decided that you need a specialty medication, they write a prescription. But unique to specialty pharmacy, the patient has no control over that prescription. There's no written prescription. There's no electronic prescription that the patient has access to because so many of the insurers have their own specialty pharmacy, chances are the patient's insurer is going to require that drug to be filled through the insurer's specialty pharmacy. And there's so there's no option. There's no price shopping. There's no good RX for specialty pharmacy. I have Aetna. It's going to be filled through the Aetna specialty pharmacy or the CVS specialty pharmacy because it's all the same thing. The next step is to get the prior authorization taken care of. And there's all sorts of games that insurers play with prior authorization. I don't know if prior authorization should be totally done away with, but the way that we're doing them now is terrible. Then they ship it to you, and then you actually have it in your hands. If you are a patient who receives infusions instead of injections, it gets even more complicated. The provider and or the insurer decides if you're going to get the infusion in the hospital, in an outpatient center that may or may not be affiliated with the hospital, or at home. And then there's just a whole other layer here of how the drug is going to get to the patient. So starting out, the patient's not even seeing the prescription. So it's not like a normal retail clinic where the the patient has some agency over where that script winds up being sent and filled. This, what you're saying is that with all this vertical integration happening and captive populations between insurance carriers and, and PBMs and they own all the pharmacies, they're like, you're getting your script filled here and you should go there. Then there's the PA process, which can become contentious and the patient's just kind of playing a waiting game. Then as you're talking about infusions and there's white bagging, there's brown bagging, and there's all the different flavors of that. This is very not patient friendly. (laughs) No, not at all. There's another layer here of oftentimes the infusion center staff, depending on the system, they may or may not be experts in what they're infusing. I don't know. Nurses have so much on their plates. And oftentimes infusion centers are just, they feel like, at least from a patient perspective, they feel like add-ons for the hospital. I'm quite sure that they're revenue drivers. But I don't think hospitals often invest time in training the staff to deal with the unique situations of an infusion center. It can be a high drama, high emotion place, especially if they're infusing oncology patients. And this isn't at all a knock on nurses. Nurses are the backbone of the healthcare system. I think oftentimes hospitals aren't investing in the staff the way they need to for it to actually be an experience that feels like 
you're in good hands. Let's talk about that for a second, because the reason why the drug got put on the specialty pharmacy list to begin with is because it's expensive and complicated. So the potential value of a specialty pharmacy is that they're able to deal with the level of complication so that, I mean, what's the most expensive drug? It's the one that's not taken correctly, right? Yeah. One of the big issues with a lot of these specialty pharmacy medications is that there's tons of side effects, for example, and, and the patient really needs to understand like what's concerning and what's sort of not super concerning so that they know when to make that phone call or to give the information that's going to be required to titrate the next dose or whatever it is, right? Or switch if there's some kind of life-threatening or very concerning, dangerous, uh, adverse event. What you just said is kind of in direct contrast to that. You know, if the staff isn't trained up on these meds and cannot give the patient the information, then what's the value of the specialty pharmacy, honestly? I'm being very harsh, but seriously. Oh, it's it's the question. I think... The answer is that the patient, as we've said, just doesn't have any control in the matter. So insofar as there's any kind of competitive pressure in healthcare, it's certainly not happening in specialty pharmacy. Interestingly, the only player in specialty pharmacy that I found that has a vested interest in making sure that you're taking it correctly is the manufacturer, which is an interesting inversion of the way that I think about healthcare as a healthcare writer versus as a healthcare patient. The pharma company themselves obviously has a vested interest in you frictionlessly gaining access to the medication. You know, time to therapy is a big deal in pharma circles for both self-interested as well as other reasons. I mean, obviously the self-interest one is pretty apparent, but a lot of times you alluded to this earlier, the longer somebody has to wait before they get the therapy, the worse a condition can become. Cancer is a perfect example of that. The clock's ticking. So if it takes an inordinate amount of time to get a therapy because they're jumping through all the hoops that you've you've said, it can have negative consequences on a patient's health in a big way. From what I'm understanding, the pharma does a lot of things which are, let's just say, less than admirable. But in this particular case, they're your hero. It's confusing because I also know that my Humira costs my insurance six figures a year. But when my insurance is denying the prior authorization, my biggest partner in that fight is the manufacturer. Like you said, they have both a financial interest in keeping me on the drug and a a reputational interest in making sure that their drug remains effective for my condition. To that end, at least the manufacturers that I've encountered, and I suspect all of them, have nurse hotlines. They have insurance specialists. It was really interesting to be a healthcare writer who, you know, denigrates AbbVie for keeping Humira on patent far past when it should have expired. But at the same time, I'm immediately calling AbbVie and saying, please give me an insurance specialist and and the person's on the line in 30 seconds. It's really just a unique area of healthcare where the people that I think of as the good guys and the bad guys completely flips. It's just because there's no gloss on it at all. It's just the patient thrown into, like you said, the gladiator ring. And you're dealing with the raw financial incentives of all of these players at once. (laughs) Yeah, you're in the gladiator ring, like tugging on the end of somebody's tunic, like, hey, I'm here. (laughs) Right. Especially for, (laughs) I'm a cancer patient, whatever. I feel like they should probably be at the center. Well, in the patient first, the specialty pharmacy that we're going to create here, just maybe. Yes. 
And theoretically, the idea of a, a patient-focused specialty pharmacy would reorient a lot of those incentives around the patient. I think people will increasingly start to consider how to build this in the next few years, especially because specialty pharmacy is becoming so prevalent and the medications are only going up in price. Specialty pharmacy is taking up more and more of an insurance company's spend, therefore an employer's spend. And I think people are going to start to to notice that this is one of the areas of healthcare that has the least marketing or or patient gloss or whatever you want to say. People are going to start to look at how to do this. But I think the question is, can you realign all of those incentives in a way that puts the patient at the center or at least closer to the center? Well, let's talk about the reasons why the time could be ripe for disruption in the specialty pharmacy space. And then maybe we can talk about the barriers because there's a few. I'm kind of piecing together what you're saying. On one hand, you have a very dysfunctional, not consumer-friendly space going on here, right? Like, it sucks, to just paraphrase in mild terms. (laughs) No, it's accurate. I stand by that. So there's that. On the other hand, there's a lot of money here. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of money, right? So, you know, given the piles of of money that are flowing into the space and its lack of consumer focus. Is it mainly those two features that make it ripe for disruption or is there other things? Those are the main reasons. Biologics have only recently started to really become a primary mode of therapy for a lot of conditions that are also rising in prevalence. So the drugs are becoming more common There are new ones in the pipeline and conditions like cancer and autoimmune disease and the chronic conditions that are arising in prevalence every year can be treated sometimes with specialty drugs. And so both of those lines on the graph are going up. And at the same time, the the price is going up. No one has really figured out a good strategy for how to cap those prices. All of these things are, are happening at the same time. And insurers are becoming more vertically integrated. It's just the the system is is ripe for, for disruption because all of the things keep becoming more of themselves. And this problem is only going to become bigger. Let me just recap where we are relative to why now. One is money. There's a lot of money that's floating around here. That's always enticing when looking to disrupt a market. We also have the just lack of consumer focuses as we just talked about. But it seems like there's a couple of other things that you're alluding to here. One of them is that we're at kind of a tipping point, that it's kind of a crisis of excess. How much is enough? And we're past the point that that is acceptable relative to how much profiteering is going on in the market. But then the other thing that you brought up that I thought was really interesting is that nobody has figured out how to cap these prices. So, you know, one of the main selling points that some of these vertically integrated PBM specialty pharmacy conglomerates claim when they talk to self-insured employers, for example, is that, you know, they have it figured out how to get the best price. And I think, you know, one of the things just let me reference the New York Times article recently, as well as all the other stuff that's going on with price transparency. It's becoming increasingly clear that these large organizations don't really cap prices. So what you just said may have been known pretty well, frankly, in healthcare circles for a long time, but it's becoming more widely known amongst your average civilian. For example, you know, 
the people who might be thinking about getting into this market, but then also an employer. And the, and the more that they are aware of the fact that the insurers aren't really saving money, maybe the more inclined that they will be to move in this direction or to hire such a place. I think that one of the factors, you said this, I just want to highlight it. The vertical integration of the system means that there's really no one who has an incentive to entirely keep prices down. And by that, I mean, it it would usually be the insurer. And they do do some of that by the prior authorization method. But they also own the specialty pharmacy. And the specialty pharmacy is making a percentage of the medication that they're selling. And so there's no one with a clear incentive to cap the prices. And I think that's part of the problem too. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're getting a rebate or they're getting paid the percentage of the drug cost to dispense it. So yes. All right. So there's a lot of reasons why this is an attractive market, but there are barriers. So let's talk about some barriers. What are the reality checks that if somebody's thinking like, holy heck, I got to get into this, what would you advise them of? If you want to get into this, call me because I <laughs> no, but I I just I think the biggest problem is something that we keep coming back to, which is that the patient just isn't at the center, the financial incentive in any direction. And so orienting a patient focused specialty pharmacy around the patient requires you to go against any clear revenue model. And maybe there's a way to twist the incentives to become big enough that other players in the industry listen to you. But it is going to take a little bit of finagling. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. I think the other massive problem is, we'll go back to something we said earlier, the patient never sees the prescription. If their insurer is one of the big four or five insurers that that cover most of the privately insured population in the US, they don't have any control over where that prescription is going to be filled. It's probably going to be filled by the insurer's specialty pharmacy. And most of those insurers have a requirement that it be fulfilled by their specialty pharmacy, the one that they own. And so there's how to get that prescription as an outside entity when the insurer is making money off of this vertical stack. I don't know. I, I haven't been able to figure that out. And that, that to me seems like the biggest obstacle. Like how many get locked out is basically exactly what you just said. They get locked out by the big carriers. You know, like you, you've got to be in network to get patients. And who owns the network? The existing stakeholders. So they're not going to be super inclined to, you know, invite their competition. Right. The most recent wave of, of digital health companies that we've seen get around that by offering either directly to the employer or they sell to the payer because they're an add-on that would be appealing to an employer. And specialty pharmacy maybe fits into that, but I just don't think it's a huge priority for an employer to make sure that their patients are having a good experience with their injectable medications. It's just, it's so many steps removed from you know, maybe there are cost savings, but the employer is not really going to see it. It's more of a patient satisfaction thing. I do think there's a lot of there's a lot of money to be made there, but I just don't think it's direct enough for an employer to see enough of an upside that it's going to sway the insurer who already owns their own specialty pharmacy. Let me push back on that in one respect and then not in another. I think if we're talking about your average employer who really doesn't understand how this game is played then I think you're entirely correct. On the other hand, there was just a a press release, the state of New Jersey employer plan. They're going to save $1.3 billion 
because they have figured out a better way to do pharmacy and specialty pharmacy over the next three years. They're really beginning to understand what the impact is of having a specialty pharmacy that is just disconnected and fragmented and nobody knows what's going on. And these patients really are not getting great care for the amount of money that's being spent. So... Yeah, no, I, I I think that's a great thing to bring up. But I do think it, it highlights the scale that you need to be able to do something like that. Maybe what you're kind of implying, and maybe this is the answer, is that it, it has to be a national or state level player that's going to make this change. Maybe it can't be, you know, a seed stage startup. But yeah, there's a lot of money to be saved. And I think patient experience, especially if you're dealing with with cancer patients, it's not nothing. It means something. And maybe that has a financial value. Maybe that maybe the cancer patients have better outcomes. But from a human perspective, it means something to be able to improve that experience. You know, you alluded to something earlier, and I just want to make sure that we get to it. We were talking about the different sites of care. And one of the things that you've brought up a couple of times, actually, is the opportunity to get the infusion at home. And obviously, there's a, a number of home infusion startups that are, are, are popping up, maybe in direct response to how much inpatient you know, how much it costs whoever the ultimate purchaser is if a patient gets an infusion in a hospital, right? The reaction to that is, okay, well, we'll do home infusions. You have some experience there? I do. Yes. Yeah. This this goes back to, to me as a patient and me as a, someone called me a healthcare groupie once, trying to just experience the different things that are happening. I was living in Boston at the time. And it was a large hospital system located in Boston that shall remain nameless. <laughs> but there's only one large hospital system in Boston. They had just started a home infusion program and asked if I wanted to help them pilot it. So I should be clear that this was a pilot experience. And I agreed to do it knowing that it was probably going to be a trip. But I agreed. They followed the brown bagging procedure where they sent me the medication. My apartment building lost it in the package room for a few days. Eventually we found it. The ice had melted. It had long been at room temperature or warmer. So I called the hospital. They had no idea whether or not it should be infused. We went back and forth for a few days. Eventually we all decided, what the heck, we'll try it. A nurse showed up. They couldn't find a parking spot. Eventually they found a parking spot. The nurse showed up. The poor guy was dripping sweat. It was, it was a summer day. My roommate had a cat. The cat hair went all over the IV line. He accidentally rolled my vein. I dripped blood all over the dining room table. And I thought it was kind of funny because I had done this because I knew it was a pilot and because I wanted to see how it would go. But I never did a home infusion again. And I just wonder <laughs> the quality of at-home infusion, I think, depends on a lot of variables. It depends on the nurse you get. It depends on how much parking your apartment building has. If they're shipping you the drug... Is it to your door or is it to the package room? Does your roommate have a pet that you have no control over? And there's just so many factors in an at-home infusion program that at the end of that day, I was wondering if it was actually going to be cheaper because it felt like there was so much liability <laughs> involved in the occasion. This was a few years ago. I think at-home infusion programs have hopefully become a little bit more well-oiled, but it just really hammered home to me that this might be cheaper, but doesn't necessarily equal a better patient experience. I do want to caveat this by saying I talked to someone else who gets at-home infusions. They, she has a very close personal relationship with her nurse. They have a system. She gets to take a nap while she gets her infusion. I just think the experience has more variability to it than a in-clinic infusion. 
Dr. Eric Bricker did a video on, on home infusions and I'm laughing at it. It was not funny at all, but he referenced a couple of things. One of them was a guide that was given to patients. It was a YouTube video showing a patient how to do the at-home infusion by themselves. So this wasn't nurse. This was in a case where there wasn't a nurse. There was 180 steps. And then he apparently went on YouTube, did a search and found a patient that did his own video, you know, like how to do this by yourself. And at the very beginning of the video, this guy was like, okay, well, the first step is wash your hands, but you know, who washes their hands? <laughs> so, you know, like there's a lot of issues with not only the nurse assisted infusions, but just also the, the ones which are self-infused or self-injected. This is a whole side note, so I'll keep it brief. But a lot of these medications and, you know, the, the materials that go into them weren't designed with the user in mind, whether that user is a nurse or a patient. And I just now I use an injectable, I use Humira. But, you know, if the listeners can Google what a Humira pen looks like. One end is gray, one end is purple. The end that's purple, you would think, is the end with the needle. And it's not. It's the other end. It's the gray end. People inject their thumbs all the time because of just that color difference. But the manufacturer has no incentive to change it. They didn't think about it. And I think, yeah, that, that just reverberates down to the 180 steps needed to do an at-home infusion. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is that obviously, you know, as we just talked, there's a, there's a huge financial incentive to move patients out of the hospital to get these infusions. But because there's no patient-first specialty pharmacy on the other end of that, if you're a purchaser, these are obviously things that you want to consider. So if, if we were going to sum up the patient-first specialty pharmacy here from the patient's perspective or from what your vision is in the future, is there any thoughts that you want to throw out there? I think this isn't unique advice at all, but I, I do think it's frequently overlooked. It's what you mentioned with the YouTube video. I think people who are designing these things need to see how patients are actually doing it because the guy saying, oh, who washes their hands, that's really valuable information. Maybe you include an alcohol towelette in the kit. And I, I think too often healthcare providers or healthcare leaders don't walk through that themselves because it's, you know, it's challenging and it, it takes some time to put yourself through that experience. But I think it's really valuable. On a business side, I don't know. I think there's a lot of money here. I think this market is going to only increase in size. I think that this is desperately needed and that there has to be a way to build a business model that orients a specialty pharmacy around the patient or at least a subset of patients who maybe receive a subset of these medications. I think you need scale. I think that's the most obvious thing because you have to be able to either go around the major insurers or you have to directly compete. And I think you need scale to be able to do that. Also at the hospital level, I interviewed David Carmouche from Oshner a while back. And, and one of the things that they were trying to do is some value-based contracting with pharma. And one of the issues that they had, you have to have enough patients, not only on that drug, but also with that one particular insurer to make it worth anybody's time to invest the amount of time that is necessary in order to pull this off. So I think scale within a particular local market would be required for any stakeholder in this mix. But then again, you know, there's all this where people are trying to figure out how to aggregate like entities within a number of different geographies. So who knows? 
You reminded me very quickly of a lot of the newer insurers might be looking for partners. I don't know that for sure. I've never worked with any of them. But I do think that we're kind of reaching a point where maybe this becomes easier every year because the partners that are going to help you get to that scale, maybe it's a provider, maybe it's an insurer. So I I do think it's becoming easier. But yeah, you scale. (laughs) Scale and partnerships. There we go. The story of all of healthcare. (laughs) The answer to many questions. So Olivia, talk about Acute Condition, your newsletter. What do you talk about? Where can people go and find it? I have been talking a lot about specialty pharmacy, but I also try to talk about topics across digital healthcare, mostly from a business perspective. You can find it at www.acutecondition.com. The www is important because I have not figured out how to integrate it into the acutecondition.com domain. Someday I will figure that out. Olivia Webb, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you so much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.